partly why we should care about what happens to trans people in healthcare is because it reflects attention on some of the flaws in the system of healthcare itself. This week on Interstates, a conversation about trans medicine. As our guest Steph Schuster was saying, understanding trans people's experience of healthcare actually offers a pretty good guide for making it better for everyone, especially marginalized people. But also, it matters for trans people. This conversation also gets into how Steph Schuster started researching the sociology of gender and how doctors' own relationships with uncertainty shapes how they approach patients who don't fit their expectations. That's all coming up right after this. This is Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. So state legislatures across the country have been passing a lot of legislation that targets people who are gay or trans or otherwise queer, especially young people. Alabama, for example, currently wins for the strictest anti-trans legislative package in history. It's called the Alabama Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act. And the law makes it a felony for a doctor to perform a surgery or even prescribe medication for a gender transition to anyone under 19. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott announced that gender-affirming treatments for transgender youth constitute child abuse. Here in Indiana, the legislature has not yet been quite as restrictive but it did just override a significant veto. Our governor, Eric Holcomb, had decided a bill that would keep transgender girls out of girls' school sports didn't solve any real problem. So he vetoed it. Holcomb is a Republican, by the way. Then, a week and a half ago, the legislature used a technical session to override that veto. That means in Indiana, at least for now, transgender girls cannot join sports teams with other girls. With all that in mind, I want to replay a conversation we aired on WFIU last fall as the last episode of our interview show, Profiles. This is a conversation with sociologist Steph Schuster. Steph teaches at Michigan State University, and they're the author of a book called Trans Medicine, The Emergence and Practice of Treating Gender. It came out last year. Trans medicine looks at how health professionals interact with patients who come in looking for gender-affirming care. There's not a ton of scientific research on medical care for trans folks. Combined with medical providers' own lack of experience, that undermines their ability to put together good treatment plans and help people make medical decisions related to gender. So, this week on Interstates, we present Steph Schuster in conversation with Stephanie Solomon. Steph talks about their time in Bloomington, how they ended up studying the sociology of gender, and how doctors' own relationships with uncertainty shapes how they interact with trans patients. Guest interviewer Stephanie Solomon is the Youth Program Coordinator at the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence and was once Steph Schuster's neighbor in their undergraduate dorm at IU. And so, without further ado, here is sociologist Steph Schuster in conversation with Stephanie Solomon. Welcome back to Bloomington, Steph. Feels good to be back. I would love to hear about a formative experience in Bloomington that kind of shaped and brought you where you are today. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. There are so many formative experiences, right, in college. So I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and moving to Bloomington, Indiana. It was the first 
it was the first place that I moved away from, you know, where I grew up. And I I was already out as a queer person at the time. Um, and what I was really caught off guard by was how there seemed to be a really thriving queer community in Bloomington. And that was something that I was not expecting. So, you know, I think that finding community and really having room to understand my identities, both as a as a person, but also going through. Um, so I was a, a sociology major mm-hmm. and falling in love with the topic and the methods. And within that, I was taking, you know, sociology of gender and sexuality and social movements and medicine and really just fell into this area that has become my career. So it's hard to pinpoint like one formative experience, but there are so many. It's yeah, it's it's kind of incredible to think about. So after Bloomington, you moved to Iowa to attend graduate school. What was that like to move to a new place? Yeah, I mean, it was scary. You know, it was it was scary because at that time I had established such deep connections to Bloomington and I just, you know, I had a really strong community here and Bloomington was a place where I felt like I could be I could be myself. I could be out, I could be nerdy, I could be excited about books and gardening thanks to you and you know, there's so much in this area that that is satisfying like for quality of life for me. Mm-hmm. And all I knew about Iowa really was that it has corn. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if you remember that night when I when I accepted the offer to attend my PhD program in Iowa, but I was like pacing and pacing and pacing outside of the mailbox, I think on maybe 4th Street somewhere. And I finally just had to like open the door and toss it in. And it was like, okay, that's it, like it's done. When I moved to Iowa City, I was like, I first need to establish a community. And so I think this happens a lot. Like, you know, you move to a new place, you need to figure out where the coffee shop is and the grocery stores and where to live and how to get to work. And for me, I started asking around, like, where are the healthcare providers who, who know how to work with trans people or who want to work with trans people? And so many people like in the transgender community and also, you know, like my peers in my program were just like, I have no idea. And so I started doing a lot of healthcare work, like healthcare advocacy work Mm -hmm. and working with a handful of providers who were eager to be better doctors, who wanted to work with trans people and felt completely ill-equipped to do so. And so we would, you know, we would host workshops and events and have these really intense conversations. And that work actually opened a window for me into understanding the kinds of challenges that providers feel in working with trans people. From a sociological perspective, when we think about medical providers, medical providers are professionals. And what that means is that they have expert knowledge and experience. So as 
as people who, you know, as if we're patients, when we go to the doctor, we expect that they know what they're doing. And sociologically, when doctors are like, I have no clue what I'm doing, it presents a puzzle. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, the puzzle was what shapes that feeling of uncertainty? And I really sat with that question. And then, and then all of a sudden, I was like, uh-oh, I have to work on a dissertation. <laughs> so I, I started interviewing providers because I wanted to know if that was something unique to Iowa City or if that was representative of a national uncertainty. And so I just started picking up the phone and calling providers and reaching out to my networks. And the more that I spoke with providers, the more that I understood that part of the story of grappling with how providers fare in trans medicine is really a story of uncertainty. And so the book that just came out, Trans Medicine, is it's broken up into two parts. So part one, I look at the historical context that shaped trans medicine. A lot of that work comes right out of, you know, the Kinsey Institute here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was fun to like be able to come back to Indiana and work in the Kinsey Institute. And the resource specialists there are amazing and helped me find so many documents. And a lot of those were from this guy named Harry Benjamin. He was an interesting character. In <laughs> he certainly was. Yeah. You know, he was nationally known as like the medical provider in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. And so at the Kinsey Institute, they have a Harry Benjamin collection. He was meticulous in his record keeping. So you can actually track all these letters of correspondence between providers to, to, ben, to Benjamin and from Benjamin back and patients. And those letters helped me understand like where trans medicine really took off like as a field and the assumptions that shaped how doctors think about trans people. So part two of the book is all of the interviews I did with providers. I also went to healthcare conferences and observed them, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, which is fascinating. Like it was a great data source. But the questions that motivate the book really are about how do they manage their uncertainty? How does the fact of such vast uncertainty also challenge their sense of themselves as experts? And what does trans medicine teach us about medicine in general? So I've been out of academia for a very long time. I graduated with you in 2004 and just returned to IU to study public health mm -hmm. this past year. And one thing that I really appreciated about your book was I felt a little intimidated going into and knowing you and knowing that you've been in academia and I often feel kind of blown away when we're when we're talking about your work but I found the book to be really accessible so I'd love to hear about who your intended audience is for the book and if that was a, an intentional thing that you did by making it a really accessible read yeah thank you for and <laughs> that's like high compliment you know, going into the beginning of the writing process, I was mostly thinking about an academic audience. I'm an assistant professor, which means that the next major hurdle to get promoted is 
I have to, you know, have publications and do all these things. And so when I went into it, I was thinking mostly about how to get myself to the associate professor position. Mm-hmm. And and the book helps me achieve that. So, and like, you know, I was writing the majority of the book during the pandemic. And I'm not sure if this resonates with, you know, you and also listeners, but some of my priorities changed a little bit. And I had a lot of time to think and reflect on what I wanted the project to be and who I wanted it to reach. And so somewhere right around the middle, I was like, I actually think that there, there's enough here about you know the experiences of medical providers and how they continue to, for example, punish people who don't uphold you know norms that 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 probably resonates with a lot of people and from a lot of different marginalized groups and and so I started kind of trying to imagine if my brother picked up the book my brother helps me with my website so like there's there's there have been moments where he's like it sounds like you're doing really cool work but I have no idea what you're talking about and that like that bo- that started bothering me and so I started imagining that I was writing to him and I wanted him to be able to pick up the book and understand it. And so I think in that way, it really helped me to reframe, to like remove as much jargon as possible, but to keep the story, which has so many different moving parts in it. And I also imagine like those providers that I met in Iowa City who were like, we want to work with trans people, but we have no idea what we're doing. This book is not a how-to, right? It's not, a, it's not how to administer hormones. It's more like how to be a more mindful doctor. <laughs> yeah, so. and I I think about what it must have felt like to be really immersed in the sociology of medicine in the midst of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that was another thing, the way that talking about trans medicine offered an opening to talk about the medical system in general and how it impacts all of us. So I think this might be a good time to take a little pause. Some of our listeners might not know some of the language that we're using. Can you help us understand what language we use now, especially in relation to trans medicine and the trans community um, and how that has changed over time? Mm-hmm. We could, you know, we could probably chat for hours about <laughs> about how language changes. But you're right. It can be confusing, partly because it changes so quickly. So when I use terms like trans or transgender, I'm really referring to people who, whose assigned sex at birth and their gender identities do not align in the way that we expect. So for example, someone who is assigned male at birth, we expect will, will grow up and identify as a man. And when that is not aligned, like that tends to be a term that we would refer to as like being trans. Mm -hmm. I try to keep my definitions really open, partly because, you know, a year from now, all of the terms might change again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, it's interesting to think about how language matters, not just in this conversation and not just for people who are listening to like understand, but also these are questions that medical providers have too. So <laughs> uh, right now, for example, non-binary people. Non-binary people are those who do not identify as 
women or men, but something outside or beyond those binary categories. So when we talk about binaries, we're talking about women, men, female, male, etc. The term non-binary really, I mean, I'm try- like it's hard to pinpoint because uh, time feels a little strange right now. <laughs> but I, I would put the development in the, in the, you know, the circulation of the term non-binary, I would date it about a decade. And it became a way for people within trans communities who might not be seeking to transition from woman to man or man to woman. And that helped open up like a whole new playing ground for gender identities. And now there's non-binary people and gender queer and gender fluid and agender, and there's probably a thousand more. If we go back to the 50s and 60s, those terms did not exist. And the terminology that was used at the time, really it was transsexual. And that developed out of distinguishing between, and again, this is like the language they used at the time, um, transvestites, who people we might now refer to as cross-dress, like people who cross-dress, and then transsexuals. And the way that they understood it back then is that transsexuals were people who sought medical interventions to change their their gender at like the body level. I wonder, that leads to the question of where are medical providers, and I know a little from reading the book, but found this really interesting, where are medical providers in understanding gender-affirming interventions for non-binary people? Yeah, I mean, it's really thrown some of them for quite a loop. So if we think about, again, going back to the 50s and 60s, the entire body of knowledge that was established at that time about what trans medicine, it was all oriented around offering hormones, either estrogen or testosterone, to people to transition from man to woman or woman to man. And that way of thinking about trans people and trans medicine has persisted for 70 years. (laughs) And in the last 10, you know, even providers that I interviewed who were like, I have 10 years of experience, I've had a lot of trans clients, and I at this point feel like I have a pretty good understanding of how to work with trans people. And then there's non-binary people and I just don't know what to do. And I'm like, oh, this is so interesting. Like this is yet another moment where their knowledge about what they're supposed to be doing or how to work with trans people has once again been, you know, upended. And there are some medical providers who respond by leaning into some of that flexibility and the way their patients identify their gender is it's not important to them. Instead, they they want to meet their patients where they are. And there's others who are like, that's not a not being non-binary is not a thing. You have to pick, <laughs> you know, like, are you a trans person or not? Because this non-binary thing is is just a phase. And those are providers that I. I think they have difficulty with ambiguity. This is Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. We're listening to a conversation between Stephanie Solomon and Steph Schuster. 
Schuster is a sociologist who studies how medical practitioners interact with their transgender patients. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're listening to a conversation between sociologist Steph Schuster and their friend Stephanie Solomon from the summer of 2021. Schuster's book Trans Medicine had just come out from NYU Press. Here's Stephanie Solomon. I would like to stay a little bit more in the history of this conversation. And I'm thinking a lot about the stories that were told through the letters. And I'm wondering who got access and who didn't get access to trans medicine. And are you willing to share some of those stories? Yeah. I mean, it's a really, you know, it's a really troubling history. And the reason why I wanted to go to the Kinsey Institute archives and really dig around is that, you know, I I was going to these trans health conferences and I kept hearing stories of progress. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And I think a lot of times we like to believe that social change in time unfolds in a linear, you know, that things improve over time. And so I kept hearing that over and over in these obscure references to the dark days of trans medicine. And I was like, well, I kind of want to know more because at that time there were only a couple of histories written about trans medicine, or well, trans, trans history of which medicine is one part. So I, you know, I went to the archives and I mean, I would spend weeks and weeks poring over these letters and taking notes and looking at the patterns. And the story that started emerging is that medical providers in the 50s and 60s, they were up against several challenges. One, they didn't have much knowledge, right? There weren't a lot of providers, like there were a handful of providers who wanted to work with trans people or were willing to work with trans people, but they still didn't know what they were doing. And they also faced criticism from their colleagues. So here we have a 1950s understanding of trans people, which often people assumed that trans people were delusional, right? It was assumed like you just woke up one day and wanted to change your gender. Like clearly there's, you have a mental health issue. Some of the provider's colleagues also thought that maybe they were delusional, right? Like why would you, why would you entertain the delusions of this group of people? Like send them to the therapist. So they felt like they needed to find ways to justify what they were doing, I think partly to themselves and also to those colleagues who were really critical of their practice. And so they started setting up a way of thinking about trans people that was very narrowly defined, right? People that they were willing to work with were more often white. They were more often gender conforming, meaning that if someone was transitioning towards uh, being a trans woman, they needed to be feminine, ideally hyper feminine, <laughs> held a job that also was in a feminine occupation, um, was middle class, had no children. That's a whole nother conversation <laughs> and wanted to be involved with men so that they would be heterosexual right upon transitioning. Anyone who was outside of those race, class, occupational status, familial status, had a very difficult time accessing gender-affirming care. And part of it was because providers, again, were so concerned about their own legitimacy and their own standing in the medical profession 
that they wanted like they and some of them even refer to that patient as like the ideal patient, the credible patient, the worthy patient. And anyone who is outside of any of those different categories was immediately flagged as maybe not, and I'm using air quotes here, like maybe not really truly a trans person, right? Um, and they should definitely go seek the help of a therapist. Something that really frustrates me as I've been back in this world of academia and thinking about public health is this assumption that there's a normative way of being in the world. So many of the healthy habits, and I would use air quotes there too, even though folks can't see me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if we just tell people, if you could do this or be like this, then your health issues will disappear. Mm. So in my own life, gatekeeping has shown up in doctors, not believing my pain, telling me to run, miles outside instead of addressing serious endometriosis. I'd like to hear from you how that gatekeeping has changed over time, because I did feel a sense of of sadness and there, there was a lot of cruelty in some of the stories, but I also felt a sense of hope about the ways that gatekeeping is shifting. Mm. So if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that something, you know, and just as you were talking, an important point here is that while the description that I just offered was for, you know, the so-called ideal trans patient, that those same criteria of race, class, gender normativity, heterosexuality are also things that many other groups contend with. Mm -hmm. And not being able to uphold those is sometimes met with the force of the medical establishment, right? So as like as I was writing the book, I will get to your question. <laughs> I believe you. But as I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot about, you know, um, not only what is this a case of for trans medicine, but how does it tell us something about other areas of medicine? I think a lot about people who have chronic pain, mm-hmm. right? And we hear so many stories about people with chronic pain being dismissed, by the medical establishment, often the people who are dismissed are women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, women's pain apparently is not as important <laughs> to, to take seriously. We hear that about the ways that, I don't know, like like hysteria kept coming up for me, especially as I was grappling with the archives, because that was a clear case of women who were sexually active, who were not upholding, you know, like the feminine ideal, women who were not compliant to their husband's whims, like back in the 1800s, were labeled as hysterical because of their wandering wombs (laughs) and either sent off to um, an asylum or locked away in a room, like out of sight, out of mind. That way of using the authority of medicine to punish people into compliance is not just exclusive to trans medicine, right, or trans people. Mm. I think that your question about gatekeeping reminds me of that as well, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different communities, uh, patient groups that experience 
gatekeeping in pretty incredible forms. So for trans people, the way that that shows up, it has changed since the 1950s and 60s. So like in the 50s and 60s, again, through Harry Benjamin and his colleagues swapping information about here's how to work with trans people. Again, we have to remember it's through their clinical experience that they're setting up these guidelines for how to work with trans people. It's not based, it's not supported by data. (laughs) You know, it was more just what they felt comfortable with. So they would set up, if a trans person approached Harry Benjamin, he would say, okay, go speak to a therapist. I'm asking you to do six months of therapy. And then that person will sign off. And if they feel like you're ready, then come back to me and I might consider allowing you to start hormones. So that process has eased a little bit right now in contemporary medicine, but there still are some providers who more or less follow that guideline, right? And so it makes sense in some ways. You know, in the 80s and 90s, we had a turn to evidence-based medicine, Mm -hmm. and it makes sense. Like, I want to be very careful here about not not insinuating that evidence-based medicine is not an, an important step in medical knowledge. I want to know if I take a pill, ideally, that someone somewhere has studied what the, what the side effects might be. And so just about every medical treatment has evidence to support it and also what's called a clinical guideline that literally outlines the symptoms and the treatment steps. So too in trans medicine. Those guidelines were developed in the 50s and 60s based on Harry Benjamin and his colleagues. And while they've eased up, such as instead of six months of therapy, now it's it's not mandated. Like therapy is not mandated for hormones. Instead, it's recommended. But that still kind of gestures towards that there might be something uh, psychologically wrong with trans people to want to transition in the first place. A lot of trans medicine, I mean, our healthcare infrastructure in the United States is so complicated. And it's just like, it's it's really tough to navigate. And depending on what state you live in, what kind of job you have, if you have health insurance, you might be paying out of pocket, right, for gender affirming care. That is in some ways a form of gatekeeping, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I would say the answer to your question is... It's difficult because some of those explicit forms of gatekeeping, go speak to a therapist for six months, make sure that you sign off on this and that, like that's not quite as present now, but over time, because there has been the introduction of health insurance, because there has been like the fracturing of a healthcare system where there's like so much specialization now that it presents new challenges that also presents new forms of gatekeeping. One of the parts of gatekeeping that felt hopeful to me was where some of the stories that you told about providers who were really listening deeply and trying to make decisions not based on a checklist, mm-hmm. but on the expertise of their patients. Is that more of a norm or 
it, it does it kind of depend where you live and <laughs> it kind of depends on which doctor's office you walk into <laughs> yeah so if we think about like at the same time that evidence-based medicine was introduced in the 80s and 90s so too was patient-centered care so like the idea is that that old model of like doctor knows best which is incredibly paternalistic and that you know if you're the patient you follow doctor's orders and that's like and you should be compliant um, and not question them like that is a model that has fallen out of favor for a lot of the medical establishment but what's interesting in trans medicine and undoubtedly elsewhere across you know different medical areas is that sometimes when doctors are feeling so uncertain because that's not comfortable for them to feel uncertain like that I don't know what I'm doing is not comfortable for doctors that sometimes in response to that they kind of double down and they go right back to that doctor's knows best model and impose a very strict interpretation of what trans people have to do in order to access hormones and especially surgery we haven't even talked about surgery but yeah but again like they're these are it's not every provider and i want to be really careful that that we understand that it sometimes is a little bit easier to focus on the real challenges and the power imbalances and all of the horrible things <laughs> that have happened but i i don't know i started ending my interviews with providers with a it sounds like a simple question but it really led to some beautiful answers and so I started asking providers can you share with me what are some of the joyful aspects of working with trans people and you know because like because trans people are like are fit they fit within a marginalization right like they're marginalized groups that the way at least for sociology we tend to focus so much on like social inequality inevitably equals horrible oppression, right? Mm -hmm. That we don't really know that much about joy. And so I started asking providers that too, like what are the joyful aspects of working with trans people? And even providers who were a little more strict in their interpretations, and even those providers who offered examples that to my ears as a sociologist, I was like, this, this sounds more closely aligned with the 1950s and 60s. They had beautiful responses and they talked about like they talked about how they they felt like they were better doctors through their work with trans people and I'll just offer an example or two um, because I think this is also just a loop back you know towards the beginning of our conversation there is something to be learned from trans medicine about medicine in general right so you know, doc, like there were a number of doctors who talked about, I'm aware that there is deep mistrust among trans people when they show up in healthcare. And I know that. And so I feel compelled to really slow it down and establish rapport with my patients and get to know them. And I don't know if, you know, I don't know if you've been to a doctor recently or any of the folks who are listening, but like it's usually. I don't know, seven to 12 minutes. You you check in, you fill out some forms, you go into the waiting room, and once the doctor comes in, seven minutes later, it's finished. And it is incredibly difficult to establish rapport with anyone, <laughs> like in that time period. So these doctors were kind of reflecting on, 
you know, given that I know that trans people have a lot of mistrust and I want to establish rapport, I have to slow it down and seven minutes is not going to cut it. And then what they found is like, they talked about how I learned that from my patients, from my trans patients, and I actually want more time with all of my patients. I want to know my patients better. So, yeah, so there are a lot of challenges, but I think that that providers feel like they learn a lot from their trans patients in, in how to be better doctors. I love that so much because it's, it is a balance to some of the history and present violence and cruelty that trans folks experience in the medical system. That balance of the joy and the trust and the relationship building. Yeah. I, I really feel that when you talk about that. I'm, I'm glad you're sharing that with, with me and, and our listeners today. So moving kind of in that direction, I'm wondering if some listeners might be thinking, we're talking about such a small population when we're talking about trans folks. So why should I care? Why, sh- why would a general practitioner care? And what does your book teach us about the wider population? And you've gone into that a bit, but I'd love to hear hear a little more about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, partly why we should care about what happens to trans people in healthcare is because it reflects attention on some of the flaws in the system of healthcare itself. So why do some providers mistreat trans people is because of bias. And it's hard for me to imagine that, and often it's not, like sometimes it's not even intentional, right? Like this is where like non-conscious bias comes out a lot is, if you are faced with a person, like the person standing in front of you, and you don't know how to make sense of them, and you don't know which box to put them in, in those moments, sociology consistently demonstrates that that the person with more power does everything they can to rearrange that situation so that it works for them and it makes them feel more comfortable, <laughs> right? And that, yeah. like, that's that's where bias plays out. It's why. Mm-hmm. It, like across all these different marginalized groups in healthcare and like why healthcare? Because there's power differences between doctor and patient. Even for those doctors who want to work in like a patient-centered model, they still are the ones who have to make decisions and write and write prescriptions and you know. And some of that process might be facilitated with their patients, but they still are responsible for that patient's health. So I would suggest that. Understanding the experiences of trans people in health and understanding how providers understand or sometimes continue to misunderstand them tells us a lot about healthcare in general. This is Interstates. We're listening to a conversation with sociologist Steph Schuster about how health professionals approach patients who are looking for gender affirming care. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. 
This week, in light of the Indiana legislature's banning of trans girls from girls' sports, we're listening back to a conversation with sociologist Steph Schuster about how the lack of scientific research and medical providers' own lack of clinical experience makes it harder to help patients who are looking for gender-affirming care. Schuster spoke with their old friend Stephanie Solomon in our studio last summer. You know, there has been movement recently for doctors to become better at, like, bedside manner, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But even if you're trained and train yourself to, you know, have better bedside manner, it's still when that unexpected element comes up in your practice that all of that bias comes, like, raging out Mm -hmm. um, because it feels uncontrollable. So in your book, you talk about two different kinds of providers, and this was something... I think probably because of my own life experience navigating mm. healthcare that that I really focused on in my reading. Those who are close followers and those who are more flexible. And you've talked a little bit about that. But I'm wondering if you could talk more about how those interpretations really unfold and impact individuals. Yeah. So in the book and, you know, interviewing providers and watching them at healthcare conferences, and of course there's overlap. So these are just like terms to think about how providers manage their uncertainty differently. So there are some who, when confronted with uncertainty and feel like they don't have much expertise, will closely follow those clinical guidelines that I was talking about Mm -hmm. step by step because they want assurances that they're doing the right thing. They want assurances that their own reputations will not be called into question. That question of, is the person standing before me, again, air quotes, truly trans, continues to haunt some providers today. And one way to kind of shore up that doubt is to follow those clinical guidelines step by step. First, ask the trans person to go to a therapist. Therapist signs off. Once they sign off, then have the trans person come back to me. Do they have any, and this is where it gets really interesting, they use the language of co-occurring conditions. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, and I asked some of them, you know, uh, they would say, well, if a patient has co-occurring conditions, I really want to make sure that we take care of that other stuff first. And I really... I really tried to listen with an open mind (laughs) and just ask them questions and help me understand their experience. And so I would say, oh, um, that's really interesting. Can you share more about what you mean by co-occurring condition? Mm -hmm. And they would say, well, you know, if I have a patient who comes in who has depression and also um, is seeking, you know, hormones, I want to take care of the the depression first. Mm -hmm. And then I'll consider letting them start hormones Mm -hmm. Um, because the guidelines say, you know, um, the patient should be uh, reasonably healthy, et cetera, et cetera. I think one of the sticky points about that way of thinking, like closely following that guy, following it to a T is that it sets up, first of all, an unreasonable burden on trans people. Like trans people have other, have health issues. Trans people get pink eye, they break their bones, they have sinus infections, they might have depression, whatever. Um, But the idea, like, it's very subtle, but think about it. Co-occurring, 
is a label that's used to describe people who have multiple conditions. And so it insinuates that being trans within itself is a condition, is a health problem, or is a mental health problem. While we like to think that that, that way of thinking has kind of you know, been left in the dustbins of history, I think that it still shows up in some of the provider's decision making. And what it also reflects is just the vast amount of uncertainty they have and wanting, again, they want to do right by their patients. But they also have difficulty breaking out of that strict interpretation of the guidelines. So those are like the close followers. The flexible interpreters are those who lean more comfortably into the uncertainty and follow you know, more of a model that's, that sounds something like, you are the expert over your gender identity. <laughs> I am the provider who is going to help work with you through this process, right? So like, this is another interesting sticky point in trans medicine is that who is an expert over gender identity? Because medical providers are not trained in gender identities. You know, like if I have a legal issue, I'm going to go to a lawyer. And if I have a toothache, I'm going to a dentist. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I would say if I have a gender identity question, it's a little weird to go to a medical provider. It's like maybe we should all go to the gender studies professor. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's just yeah, it's it's interesting that like they've kind of been tasked with making decisions about a gender identity, which is an area that they're just really not trained in. So those terms describe those who lean more comfortably into patient as expert over their gender, mm -hmm. and those who face so much uncertainty, they kind of double down on their authority and go back to that doctor's knows best model and follows the guideline to a T. So there was a piece in there where you talked about this subtle idea of being trans as being a, a health care issue. And that makes me want to ask my last question, which is, what is it like to study a population that you are a part of? Wait, that's your last question? That's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I... I um. At moments, it can be challenging. Um, sometimes the cognitive, emotional, professional energy that, you know, it's like I'm a trans person in my personal life and I'm a, I'm a scholar who studies trans people in medicine. And so sometimes it's like trans all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I like... I was committed to not to not presenting providers who offers at moments distasteful comments or ideas like in a negative light because that is a part of their experience. I think I'm also a little bit too much of a sociologist. Like I don't want to ascribe judgment onto providers. But I rather want to understand the patterns and the ways of thinking and the challenges they experience. And sometimes it can be difficult because I, I have had those experiences in healthcare where I show up with vertigo because I moved to a place that had a really high pollen count that I had never been exposed to. 
And six months later, I'm still going to the doctor every week, different doctors every week. And all they want to talk about is the fact that I'm a trans person. And it's like, well, I, can we talk about my vertigo? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that actually isn't, that's prohibiting me from doing my job. Um, it's very difficult to teach while you have vertigo. I bet. Yeah. So sometimes it's, it is a little tricky managing my personal life and experiences and how it maps onto some of the scholarly conversations I'm involved in. But I think in some ways it strengthens who I am as a scholar. Mm. Be and I think that part of that is because I have a commitment to not... I don't want to play the gotcha game. I want my work to speak back to an audience of not only academics and not only, you know, folks like you and like my brother, like just the, the general person. I want my work to speak back to providers. And if I played that game of like, you know, trying to portray providers who I disagreed with like in a negative way, I don't think that they would be able to hear the work or or, or take it in or reflect on it. So I think I do it as well as I can. Sometimes I'm I'm human. <laughs> so yep. not always, but I think in if anything, it's enriched the work that I do. And in some ways the work that I do has enriched who I am personally. I can attest to that. <laughs> that was sociologist Steph Schuster talking with Stephanie Solomon about their book, Trans Medicine, published in 2021 by NYU Press. If you want to know more about Schuster's book, we'll link to it on the website. listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chella, Michael Pascash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Steph Schuster and Stephanie Solomon. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time to go listening. If you were in southern Indiana this time a year ago, this will be a familiar sound. We heard it sun up to sun down for about six weeks. The 17-year cicada. I kind of miss them. I actually heard one or two of them just the other day. They, uh, I guess, are about a year late. 
All right. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>